welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Dr. Ronan Lee, author of Myanmar's Rohingya Genocide: Identity, History and Hate Speech. In this episode, Ronan talks about what he calls Myanmar's failed democratic transition under Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy. He offers his expertise on the Rohingya genocide of 2016 and 2017 and talks about the strategic mistakes of the civilian government to not take on the military at that time. He also discusses the role the international community and the new national unity government can play in Myanmar's future. Let's start the conversation. Hey, Ronan. Hello. How are you? Hi. How's it going? And so, Ronan, how did you first get involved in, in Myanmar or anything to do with Myanmar? Where was your first connection there? How did you first come upon Myanmar and, and where did your interest come from? Well, the way a lot of people take interests in things in politics in Asia, I was I was chatting with a man in a in a pub in Malaysia of all places, and a guy from Limerick, as, as it happened, uh, and he mentioned that he was on his way to Myanmar for the election to to see the election in twenty ten, and. You know, I was fascinated by uh, elections and politics. It's a field I've been working in for a long time. Uh, and I had an opportunity to, and some time to be able to to potentially get to Myanmar and, and thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll drop by the embassy and see if I can get in and see if I can get a visa. And through various uh, fortunate circumstances in 2010, when they were kicking out all the journalists and all the diplomats, I got a visa to go in. So I went into Myanmar the week before the 2010 election and was you know among the among the few foreigners that were still in country when the election was held at that time and, and that opened a range of doors because you're, you're one of the few foreigners that's there uh, people want to talk to you uh, the, the opportunities for tactful engagement with people in in Myanmar I mean it wasn't a country that I, I had any uh, scholarly knowledge of or, or, or any deep understanding of I'd, I'd read I'd read tourist guides and, and maybe a book or two or a chapter of a book before I arrived um, I think I in fact was 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 reading a biography of Aung San Suu Kyi when I got there. But because I was one of the few foreigners that was in the country for the election in 2010, doors were opened. I had a chance to meet Aung San Suu Kyi uh, shortly after she was released from house arrest. So within a week of, of her being released from house arrest in, in November of, of 2010, I had a chance to, to meet with her. And those sorts of experiences and, and seeing the country and chatting with people around the time of an election that they were pretty ambivalent about. Ordinary people were very disinterested in the outcome of the election. They expected that it was it was rigged, and, and I became fascinated in the politics of Myanmar and the culture of the country. So it was quite a, a sort of an exciting first visit for me, uh, and I stayed as long. I intended to stay just a couple of weeks. I, I stayed as long as my visa would allow. And as soon as I had to leave, I made my way back to an embassy to apply for another visa and got straight back in. And I've been doing that since 2010. Uh, and fr- from that point on, I decided to make Myanmar my scholarly focus and have obviously completed a, a, a fair bit of research, you know, doctoral studies, uh, master's and uh, focused on Myanmar, written a book now focused on, on Myanmar and, and the Rohingya. And yeah, I've spent a lot of time focused on Myanmar since, since 2010, but started out by chance. Sorry, Ronan, just when you're saying there, so where did you first become interested then in the Rohingya or where did you first become, I guess, knowledgeable on that situation that was happening? Where did that, from your visits over, did it start to become, people tell you about it? Did you visit? How did you come about it? The tourist trail in Myanmar, when I was first going there, or the, the, the easily accessible parts of the country were obviously Yangon, Mandalay. Other parts of the country were harder to get to. I mean, there were there were places that you could go and see things that foreigners were allowed to see. Rakhine State at that stage was still pretty difficult to get to if, if you only had a short time to be in country. So unless you were working for, for a charity or, or working for a government, it was going to be difficult to get there. 
And people in Yangon, Mandalay and elsewhere weren't talking to foreigners about the situation of the Rohingya. It just wasn't on the radar. What happened with me was that I was actually looking at uh, undertaking some, some academic research in Myanmar and, and uh, a colleague suggested that I have a look at the situation of the Rohingya and found, you know, as far back as 2011, that there was very little international focus on this situation. Now, that's obviously changed dramatically since that time. It's changed big time, in fact, since 2012. But in 2011, there was just not any large international focus. I mean, a, a basic Google search in 2011 would have shown that there was very little journalistic writing about the situation of the Rohingya, not very much scholarship, a couple of human rights reports. So groups like uh, MSF had written reports about the situation. Amnesty, Human Rights Watch had, had taken an interest. But beyond that, it wasn't in the international media. And, and certainly internationally, it wasn't in scholarship. Scholars outside of Myanmar were not in any great way looking at the situation of the Rohingya. And, and that's why I got into it. There was a lack of research uh, and, and a lack of interest. And, and I felt that the more I read uh, and the more I understood, I felt that there was a need and, and decided that that's what I'd, I'd spend my time on. I was shocked that the things I was reading which I knew had been brought to the attention of people like Aung San Suu Kyi. I was shocked that she wasn't as appalled as I was and as other people were about the mistreatment of not just the Rohingya but other groups, but in particular that she wasn't prepared to address the situation of the Rohingya and that it wasn't on the political radar for, for political parties like the National League for Democracy that aspired to be a national party representing all of Myanmar. I mean, it was aspiring to not just be a, an ethno-nationalist party, but a catch-all party that represented everyone in Myanmar. Yet it was excluding, it seemed, pretty actively excluding groups like the Rohingya. And as we saw as time went by, uh, pretty aggressively excluding groups like the Rohingya and, and taking a view towards Myanmar's Muslim population that they were not quite legitimate members of the political fabric. And, and that was a pretty big concern of mine. And that's that's what drove a lot of my scholarly work to focus on, on the Rohingya. I've published as well more popular opinion writing about the situation to sort of bring the situation to a, a wider, you know, to a focus beyond academia. And, but that's that's how I got that's how I got into it. There was there was a genuine lack of research, lack of publications, lack of interest, and I felt there was a need that needed to be addressed. And I think it's one of those things like once you do your research and you, you do start to understand, which even for me is happening now, it's very hard to not acknowledge it and not be affected by what you read. In terms of Aung San Suu Kyi, so you met her back in 2010. What was your first impression? Like, I mean, you were a fan. Would that be fair to say originally? Yeah, I mean, my first impression was that this was someone who struck me in, in the short, I mean, we had a very short time together, but it, it, it struck me that this was someone who seemed almost shell-shocked by the situation that she found herself in. I mean, when you consider she'd been under house arrest for pretty much more than the previous decade and she was removed from house arrest and thrown into leadership of a national-level political party that aspired to be the government of the country. I mean, this is a country of, of 50 million people. This is a big deal. This is not something that, that you would expect someone to be, even with the best of training and the best of circumstances, not, not a situation you'd expect someone to be readily able to step into, particularly someone who'd been under house arrest, excluded from access to people for 10 years. I mean, you, you think about the situation in the world when she went into house arrest and how the world changed in the 15 years prior to 2010. I mean, the world changed dramatically during that time. She had access to an AM, FM radio. That's how she was getting her, her news from the outside world. She could listen to uh, Burmese radio. She could listen to, I think, the BBC World Service, as uh, she had access to at various times. But that was it. So, so the sorts of things that, that would have been common practice for the rest of it, I mean, computers becoming a mainstream thing, smartphones had 
had, I mean, mobile phone technology had appeared and, and had evolved into smartphones during the time she was under house arrest. I mean, these, these were dramatic changes in terms of how people live and, and how politics works and the effect that they have on politics. She emerged into a, a Myanmar that was still uh, shielded from the rest of the world. So Facebook hadn't quite arrived in Myanmar in 2010. And, it, it arrived with quite a bang in the following years, but lots of people knew that these things existed, and they would have been. It would have been a huge shock for her, and, and she struck me as someone who was shocked by the situation that she was in. I mean, very polite, very dignified in, in her bearing, but she did strike me as someone who was very shocked by the situation that she was in, and. I think that's reflected in some of the ways that she's led her party, that she's reacted in the way that someone who is dealing with a shock deals with major political decisions, which is that they, they become risk averse to taking action and to taking steps that might lead to change. And that's been one of the big criticisms that people would make of, of her party in government, of the National League for Democracy in government, that they were very much a status quo party that promised a lot. Uh, I mean, I was there, I was in Myanmar for the 2015 election as well. And that was an election where the people really had an expectation that they were voting for change. And they didn't get it from the National League for Democracy. They got really a status quo party headed by Aung San Suu Kyi. And I think some of that you can probably trace back to her time in house arrest and her nervousness about making major political decisions in a circumstance where uh, the world had changed in a big way and she didn't really experience it incrementally. She experienced all those changes that we experienced over 15 years. She experienced them all at once. And I think that's reflected too in, in, in how the party operated, that they were very resistant to making uh, changes at a fundamental level uh, in Myanmar, either to the economy, to um, social policy. And that's why I think there was in part a, a, a reluctance to criticise the military, because that would have been seen as a step that was moving away from the status quo. There's, there's people that would argue there was a lot of change in Myanmar, you know, when when the civilian government uh, went into power. Do you think that's a superficial change? I mean, like, you know, people could now read the news, whereas, you know, before they couldn't, or people could now talk openly in the streets. Like, you know, there were, for some people, they would have felt a lot more freedom. But if you actually look, it's kind of seems like surface freedom. Like if you dig underneath it, there wasn't actually a lot of change or development. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I think that, that there's two things to consider here. The, the, the one is obviously there's an opening up of the media market and mobile phone technology, Facebook, censorship, pre-publication censorship of newspapers and things like that, and that disappeared for, for a period of time. And that gave people a freedom to talk more, more openly about the sort of society that they wanted, gave them a freedom to, uh, to imagine a very different Myanmar uh, in the future. But that wasn't reflected uh, within the National League for Democracy, within the government. The government didn't uh, undertake any significant generational change. Between 2010 and, and, and 2020, there was no significant generational change within the National League for Democracy. I mean, in part, some of the protests that we've seen uh, in response to the coup involving young people, they're young people that were disenfranchised and, and excluded uh, not formally disenfranchised, but excluded from leadership roles and meaningful political involvement in parties like the National League for Democracy. In terms of making fundamental economic changes that are desperately needed in Myanmar, uh, th that didn't happen. I mean, the Myanmar economy the day before the coup was not all that different to the Myanmar economy five years previous. Yes, there's been investment and there's been new industries and the garment industry has had started to have some investment. But at a basic level, we haven't seen huge spending on infrastructure. Uh, we, we haven't seen some of the issues around climate change addressed at all. Myanmar is, is one of the world's most vulnerable countries to uh, shocks associated with climate change. There's a report, I, I think, two, two, three years ago that said it was the number two country at most risk in the world to shocks associated with climate change. Uh, we didn't see many, we didn't see significant changes to the education sector. Uh, healthcare spending, yeah, it's a little bit higher than it was, but 
really, it hasn't seen the sorts of changes that people might have expected. There is a perception, I think, or was a perception prior to the coup that the National League for Democracy had really not made the sorts of changes that people wanted to see. But but that said, you're quite right. Uh, there have been many changes in Myanmar. The genie's out of the bottle in terms of people's access to the outside world and access to communication technology. People communicate in a way about politics that they, they didn't before. There is an expectation on the part of young people, and this is feeding resistance to the coup, that there's an expectation on the part of young people that their country will be different to the way it was for their parents and their grandparents. They don't want military rule and they've seen what the outside world is like and they, they realise that that it's not unreasonable to expect that the military will step away from, from direct involvement in political decisions and that's what they are going to fight for. And that's why I think resistance to the coup this time, resistance to this coup, will be much stronger and much more prolonged than resistance to previous iterations of military rule. I mean, from a lot of the things that I've read in, in terms of the extent to which Aung San Suu Kyi did have control, even after the 2015 election, I mean, there's um, been articles, things like, why why have a coup? The Tamador had the power then, and San Suu Kyi was very limited in what change she could actually bring about. So not just reluctance, but also fear um, and, and the fact that she didn't have as much control as would have been needed to, do, to make real change. Would you disagree with that? Yeah, I would. I think we need to, we need to in part, understand where the military's at with these things. Uh, I mean, understandably, there's been talk that Min Ong Lang's personal situation played a considerable role in the, in the timing of the coup, his, his imminent retirement. Ong San Suu was indicating that she wouldn't uh, wouldn't extend his his tenure. Uh, he had a desire to protect his financial interests, and so there was a coup. I think we also probably misunderstood partly the way the military understood the situation that existed in Myanmar. They they see they saw the democracy such as it was uh, as something that they would allow to function while it served their interests and, and we thought that they might be prepared to compromise a little bit because they seemed to have a pretty good deal it seemed it seemed to be that uh, they were getting everything that they wanted and all the blame for all the political blame was been heaped on the shoulders of Aung San Suu Kyi but it turns out that they weren't getting everything that they wanted uh, they were getting everything that we thought they would find acceptable uh, as outsiders and even probably the view of Aung San Suu Kyi's government that the military was getting a good deal. Uh, but the military didn't con- doesn't consider compromise to be a good deal ever. And that's, and that's a big problem. And, and I think that's a misunderstanding that lots of us made about the potential for a coup. I mean, I, I considered, I wrote a little bit about the, the likelihood of a coup. I mean, coups, coups have happened in, in Myanmar uh, in the past. It's always a potential in a, a hybrid regime like you have in Myanmar, where, where you've got some democracy and some military control granted on the constitution. That's scholars of, of coups who will say that that is the situation most likely to lead to a coup, is, is where you've got a, a hybrid regime. But I, I think where this turned was not during 2020. I think where this turned was during 2017. And that's when the genocidal campaign to deport the Rohingya uh, occurred. And that's when Aung San Suu Kyi defended the military. Okay, when her Muslim advisor was shot in Yangon Airport as well, though. Yeah, yeah. This all, 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 happened, all happened in that same in that same period. Would you think there was a link there at all in her reluctance to speak out? Like... I mean, the ethnicity issue and the citizenship issue, Tamador took it away in 1982, I think. Um, So obviously her advisor was not Rohingya, but he was Muslim um, and supposedly trying to act against the amount of power that the military had. Do you think that could have impacted on her reluctance to then speak up um, on on the behalf of the Rohingya? Look, I I think the issue is that... If Aung San Suu Kyi had been feeling that she was in some way impeded by the military, uh, 
then there are ways that she could have taken a stand that didn't involve wholesale support for a genocidal campaign. And I don't buy the idea that she was impeded in a way that she felt her safety was at, at risk or that the government might fall. And I think the politics of this was that if the military had launched a coup in defence of a genocidal campaign against a Muslim minority and had deposed Aung San Suu Kyi because of that, I think the international response would have been very different. And I think it was a strategic mistake on the part of Aung San Suu Kyi to not take on the military at that point. Because it was, if, as you say, there was concerns about the power that the military had and, and the influence that they were having, then she must have known that there was a potential of the military retaking political power in Myanmar. And she needed to make some decisions about how to address that. And appeasing them by allowing them to undertake genocide crimes doesn't seem to be in any way an acceptable approach to addressing the situation. It seems that the decision that she made... Now, there's two ways of reading what happened in 2017. One is that she was in some way... And since she was in some way impeded and, and didn't know what to do and as a result defended the military because she was afraid of a coup. So she is cool with genocide so long as she stays in power. The, the other reading of it is that she actually supported the broad approach taken by the military. And, and I think that's probably the more likely approach. That's probably the more likely explanation. She's shown at, at numerous junctures that she is a Burma nationalist. She, she's framed her politics in terms of Burma nationalism. Uh, her gov- one of the big criticisms people made of her government between 2015 and 2020 was the way it continued policies of Burmanization throughout Myanmar. So these, these, are, the, these are the policies to assimilate uh, ethnic and religious minorities into a, a, a sort of a hegemonic ethnic Burma Buddhist state. And one of the things that was continued there was uh, go, going to ethnic minority areas and naming infrastructure projects after uh, her father, uh, who, whose reputation in ethnic minority areas is not is not positive in a lot of places because of actions that he undertook uh, during the 40s. Uh, when when he led the Japanese army into Myanmar uh, to to remove the British, and th- th- there were at that time uh, alliances and w- with with certain groups and opposition from other groups. So Aung, Aung San, her father, the general, is not seen in a positive sense uh, throughout the country. I mean, she sees him as a hero. Uh, and m- many of the majority, the majority Burma group, Buddhist group, see him as as the national independence hero. But there are lots among the ethnic minorities who actually see him as a colonizer. They see him as as part of the problem. So her her government's decision to go to their communities and name things after him, building statues of him, was seen as as incredibly provocative, and and also continuing a policy of Burmanization that the military had begun. In, in the 1960s, so there's lots of there's lots of indications that, in actual fact, her decision not to to criticise the military in 2017 wasn't a, a shrewd strategic move on her part, but in actual fact was that she supported what they were doing, and. That's consistent with other statements that she's made about uh, Muslims. It's consistent with other approaches she's had between 2012 when when there was an, an outbreak of violence in, in Rakhine State. Her response at that time was was uh, weak, to say the least. It was, you know, when, when you have a massacre of one group by another, describing it in terms where both sides f- fear the other doesn't really help to address the fundamentals. I mean, a pogrom against one group, which of course will lead to some resistance, uh, should should be understood in those terms. It shouldn't be understood as, oh, well, um, there's wrong on both sides. So her politics are pretty, I mean, ambiguous at best, but very problematic uh, at worst. But there's a big change in Myanmar, and I think that the change in Myanmar since the coup is that the alternate to military rule in Myanmar today is not a return of Aung San Suu Kyi and her way of doing politics. It's really clear from the resistance to the coup 
that what the majority of the people want is a new type of politics. They want Myanmar to, uh, to, to, to change. They don't want military rule, but they don't want a, a civilian government that gives them a sort of a, a military light form of rule. They don't want a government that continues to oppress ethnic and religious minorities. That's not what that's not what they're fighting for, and that's a pretty positive thing. And it, it's it's sad that it's taken a coup to get us to that stage. Roman, is there a third reason that could be added to to, to those reasons of why Aung San Suu Kyi has has acted the way she has? Does she lack knowledge on her country and, you know, its history? Does she lack an understanding of the ethnic groups? Like, could it be that she's naive? Could it be that she doesn't have the information? Could it be that she doesn't have the right people giving her the information or she's trusting the wrong people? Like, it's a very complex country and there's so many different ethnic groups and, like by not maybe focusing on that or educating herself on that, has she not understood it? Like, has she missed the boat on it? Like, could it just be she is ill-equipped from a political perspective? She just doesn't know enough about it, like not the right person for the job in that regard. Well, I think she probably was not the right person for that job. I think she was probably the right person to be a figurehead political leader. The, the irony in many ways is that she's fought to become the state councillor, the, the de facto prime minister. She wants to be a president, uh, or wanted to be a de facto president, uh, but also run the government. And in many ways, she's far more suited to being a figurehead leader than a head of government. And, and I've wondered, uh, I've thought myself whether or not uh, a, a compromise might have been found with the military years ago that involved her becoming a figurehead president of Myanmar, but not the head of government. Because I think her approach to government and governing uh, has has not been good. Uh, but I don't I don't buy the argument that it's a complex country and she just doesn't understand it. Uh, it yeah, of course, every country is complex. Uh, every every country that has an experience of colonialism will be complex in, in ways that will endure well beyond the time that the colonizer leaves. This is a country that's also had uh, decades of military dictatorship that's been cut off from the outside world in, in, in terms of media access, in terms of even being able to see what was on television, watch, even watching sporting events was something that people in Myanmar weren't, weren't really able to do for, for decades. So that's given a range of challenges to Myanmar. But that said, uh, the the big issues that Aung San Suu Kyi's had to face in government, uh, uh, things like the deport, the forced deportation of the Rohingya, well, almost one hundred, almost one million Rohingya were deported in twenty seventeen. That's one in fifty of the people in Myanmar. Understanding what's going on and taking the time to understand exactly what's going on it is not something that, that is uh, an, an unreasonable expectation of the country's head of government. If one in 50 of your people have been genocidally deported from your country by your country's military, believing that it's just too complex to understand, uh, it isn't going to cut it. It would be different if this was something that had happened to a smaller group of people uh, in, in an outlying part of the country where maybe it was dozens that were affected. You could understand that the national level leaders might not understand what was happening on the ground uh, in the short term. You'd expect that they'd get their heads around it pretty quick, though. Uh, but when it's one in 50 forcibly deported by your military, uh, then I, I don't I don't think you get the excuse of feeling that it's it's a little bit too complex. But more than that, you, you don't that you don't get that excuse when you make the decision that you're going to go to the International Court of Justice and defend it. And that's what tells me and tells the world that Aung San Suu Kyi firmly believes that she knows what went on in 2017 uh, and firmly believes to the extent that she will represent the country's interests at an international legal body. I mean, this was unusual. Her decision to go to the Court of Justice was really unusual. That's that's really a role that you would expect for a uh, competent lawyer uh, to fulfil, maybe someone from the Attorney General's department uh, or, or, or someone associated with, uh, with the, the legal system in your country. It's not something you'd necessarily expect a politician to do.
or a national level political leader. I mean, you don't you don't see that happening on a on a routine basis. So she certainly feels she knew what was going on in Rakhine State and what had gone on with the military and the Rohingya. And I think the problem is that she's happy with the outcome. And her government took very few steps between 2017 and 2020 to reverse or address in any meaningful way uh, the crimes that the military undertook in 2017. And there were lots of things that, that her government could have done and they didn't. And so, Ronan, in some ways, did she kind of hand like the military the perfect opportunity to, to come this year and, and take the country? Because her international reputation is ruined. They got away with the worst crime you could commit and there's been no consequences. They're like, hey, guys, like, look what we just did. Like, we can do more. Like, did it embolden them almost? Like, oh, un- Unquestionably. I mean, uh, w- without a doubt, they're emboldened by what happened in 2017. So, so Aung San Suu in the National League for Democracy, I think, got the politics, the international politics really badly wrong in 2017. Even if they had a view that they didn't want the Rohingya in the country, they made an error, I think, in, in empowering the military to undertake such a brutal genocidal campaign and without calling on without calling for an international response because it, it trashed her reputation internationally quite Rightly so. I mean, no one after 2017 internationally can consider whether or not they would take any action to assist Aung San Suu Kyi politically without considering her views on genocide. And that's the decision that she made, not just by her actions in 17, but by her continuation of her, her continued defence of the military's actions from 17. I think the military in Myanmar then, of course, realised that if they could get away with what they did in 2017 and if Aung San Suu Kyi's reputation was damaged, well, they could get away with other things too. And the military, we know, tests out their strategies. So what we saw in 2017 was not the first forced deportation. There was, there was one in October of 2016, so 90,000 Rohingya were deported at that time in in a campaign that was very similar to what we saw in 2017. There were elements of the the, the 2016 deportation that that were very similar, smaller obviously, but 90,000 people is a significant number of people to be forced to cross an international border. Uh, There were UN staff in Bangladesh at that time using terms like ethnic cleansing. Uh, they were really confused about what they, what they were seeing because they weren't getting reports. It, w- it wasn't widely reported internationally uh, and there wasn't, there wasn't an international response of any significance and there was no response from Aung San Suu Kyi's government at that stage to call on the military to restrain themselves in 2016. Now, the worst thing that happened after that was that the reports, the accounts of Rohingya women, that sexual violence had been used as a a weapon of war by Myanmar's military during that forced deportation in 2016, the response from Aung San Suu Kyi and her office was to it was to attach a Facebook post to the media reports about these claims with the words fake rape on it. This is on the state councillor's official Facebook page, and it stayed there for a considerable period of time. So that was Aung San Suu Kyi's response to a forced deportation involving, uh, unquestionably involving uh, widespread sexual violence by the military during 2016. That green-lighted the 2017 deportation, and I think that green-lighted the military's actions during the coup. So the military, at each step along the way, tests what will happen. A small deportation of Rohingya in 2016, they got away with it. It was defended by Aung San Suu Kyi. Their crimes were defended by Aung San Suu Kyi. They did a bigger one in 2017. Again, she defended them. And, and continued to defend them for years after, and but no doubt still does. Uh, and then we see the coup in 2020. And by then, the problem internationally is that 
why would why would any foreign power intervene in Myanmar in 2020 when they didn't intervene in 2016 or 2017? So that so the obvious question that gets asked at the UN Security Council is when powers there start debating what to do in 2020. The obvious response that that, that people give when they uh, when they don't want action is to say, well, you didn't take any action over genocide. Why would you take action over regime change? And I think the error made by Aung San Suu Kyi and her government is that when they had opportunities to signal that they were unhappy with the actions of the military, it turns out that they actually weren't unhappy with the actions of the military. So we we might, as outsiders, look at the situation and think, well, Aung San Suu Kyi must have been appalled by what happened in 2016 and 2017. It turns out she wasn't. That's the challenge. And now that response has crueled any international response to the coup because if you don't respond to a genocide, why would you respond to regime change? Like some people, I guess, Ronan, think that she was trying to get to this election, you know, she was trying to get to this election, she would get the majority and that they would finally, you know, be able to make changes to the constitution and that, you know, she maybe sucked up what she had to to get to there so that they could bring real change. Do you buy that? No. No. <laughs> no, I don't buy that at all. And I don't buy it I don't buy it for this reason. That's a kind reading of what has happened in Myanmar. And that's, I mean, a, a, a reading lots of people have made about the situation that, that Aung San Suu Kyi was just trying to get through one more election and that would show the military that, that the people support her and that they needed to give her some power. But you've got to think about the compromises that she made to get to that election. She was cool with genocide. She was cool with widespread sex crimes. She was cool with villages being burnt. She was, um, she was cool with the deportation of one in 50 of the people of her country. And I think when you look at it in those terms, you kind of think, what, what, did, she want, what did she want that was in any way different in a meaningful sense from military control? Well, sure, um, maybe, maybe the National League for Democracy uh, would have different policies. But if you're comfortable with genocide and you're happy to compromise on genocide, I, I, don't, I don't think that you get to use that to justify steps that you take down the track to make the country better in, in your mind. I, I think what is worth noting is that if we do accept that she did feel that there was a risk of the military retaking power, why was there no strategy in place, I mean none, to respond to a military coup in Myanmar? I mean, she seemingly knew it was coming or had a fear of it, but the day it occurred, the day before the new, the, the new members of parliament were sworn in, there was no strategy in place. She was arrested along with, with a large majority of those newly elected members of parliament, recently elected members of parliament and, and, and the leaders of the outgoing democratic government. But there was no strategy. I mean, none. There was no indication from her party that they had a contingency plan for what would happen if there was a military coup. And, and that says to me that they really had no plan for what would happen with the military going forward. That if they had no plan for, for a coup, how, how, would that, how would we have expected them to have any plan for what would happen once they get back into government after the 2020 election? And that's why I'm so disappointed that these seeming compromises were made with the military all along the line, because the compromises served to do one thing, embolden the military. I mean, that's, that's all that we got. I think as well, like for a lot of people who are not connected to Myanmar and they just see the news and obviously people have heard about the Rohingya crisis, they've heard about the genocide, but they're kind of detached from it, you know, um, because they just turn on the news, they see another sad story in a country and then they kind of move on. But I mean, 
some of those stories are really harrowing. I mean, that, that you tell it in your book and that other people have, I mean, if you read, anyone who reads the actual UN fact-finding missions or amnesty or any of those reports, they are horrific. Um, so I think you mentioned it earlier, like it's one thing if you don't believe they are the right to citizenship, you, you want to deport them, but to rape, murder and burn their houses down, there's just no real justification for that in any situation whoever a person is whatever reason they're in a country you know so I just yeah I find that's the one thing I can't excuse or or I can't find you know there's a lot of excuses people have given for Aung San Suu Kyi but the way in which things were done to people there's no excuse for it even if she believes that you know they are not citizens even if deep down that's what she believes you still they're still people they're still human beings I mean you don't say it's okay I mean I think even in the opening of your book, you know, there's one one man you spoke to and, and he talked about the military coming to his house, raping his two daughters, shooting them in front of him and burning his house down. I mean, and there's countless stories like that that people have. And, and not just in Rohingya, there's also in, um, you know, Kachin, uh, Shan, other areas who have suffered that for, for a long time as well. Um, someone said to me that they thought the Rohingya were lucky in the sense that they are, it happened to them in a technological era where there is a lot more evidence than there ever was for other ethnic groups of what happened to them you know there was very little way of getting that information out but it's very hard to to find any excuse i guess or any justification for for the way it's been handled there's there's no i mean there's no um upside to it there's nothing positive about being a victim of of a, a, a genocide and war crimes and crimes against humanity. Uh, th- these are not unique experiences uh, in, in Myanmar. I mean, the Rohingya situation is, it's what I work on. It's what I write about. And they're, they're the folk that, that share their stories with me. Um, but there are common experiences that have been shared by lots of other groups within Myanmar. Uh, among ethnic and religious minorities, um, Karen, Shan, Chin, Chin, I mean, wherever you go, where the, military, where the Myanmar military is involved, the, the crimes are brutal. Uh, crimes against humanity identified and war crimes identified by the UN fact-finding team uh, in, in um, Shan and, and Kachin states, as, as, well as, as well as against the Rohingya. In the Rohingya's case, we talk about genocide because the... the specific nature of the crimes against the Rohingya, I believe will be shown to me, I mean, it's a genocide, and I believe it will be shown to be as such in the International Court of Justice. The crimes against the Rohingya were not designed to quell the Rohingya or um, calm them or pacify them so that they could be a part of the national fabric. The crimes against them were to either expel them or kill them. Or, or, or damage the group such that it doesn't it doesn't exist as a group. The, the military do not want the Rohingya to be part of the national fabric of Myanmar. And that's what's been so disappointing about Aung San Suu Kyi's response to this, is that uh, th- these, these were crimes she could have called out at, at many junctures. At, or, or she could have not given a full-throated defence of the military at any point along the line. But she's probably the biggest cheerleader for the military in terms of their mistreatment of the Rohingya among the civilian population of Myanmar. And that's that's disturbing. And that's why I think history won't remember her fondly uh, because they'll always remember that she was in favour of genocidally deporting uh, Rohingya to Bangladesh. The, the mistreatment of the Rohingya, the mistreatment of other ethnic and religious minorities, though, highlights the problem that Myanmar has with the military being in power. That the more power you give those people, uh, the more likely they are to, to commit and continue to commit incredibly problematic crimes, war crimes and crimes against humanity and genocide. And that's why we need to get the military out of power in Myanmar. I mean, the pathway back for Myanmar is step one is get the military out of power. That's got to be the next step. I mean, this is going to be a, a challenging process that, that could take years or decades. 
but step one will have to be getting the military out of power. I don't see any opportunities for a compromise with the military that allows them to go back to the pre-coup status quo where they where they had power and where they avoided civilian oversight. I mean, this, this is a military that has no civilian oversight. So the civilian leader of the country, unlike in, in say, the West, where um, you know the US, the commander in chief is the president, and yes, the president doesn't make military decisions on the ground, but ultimately they make decisions about strategy and about where the military goes to war and, and those sorts of those sorts of things where they're where they're active. That's not the case in Myanmar. The the, the head of the military makes their own decisions. They're a law unto themselves, uh, and they have no civilian scrutiny. And that needs to end. So, returning to the sort of constitutional arrangements we had in Myanmar pre-coup, where the military avoided civilian oversight, I don't think is an option moving forward. I don't think anyone, don't think anyone who's resisting the coup would be comfortable with that. And that, and that means the next step has to be getting the military out of power. And the, the video footage that we're seeing daily on social media, because everyone's armed with a smartphone. So whilst the Rohingya was widely reported latterly in, in Western society, it was mostly words and not the horrendous yeah. images. But I, yeah, I just, there's not a day that goes by where I'm not just like sick to my stomach because I've seen the, the brutality firsthand on my Facebook page that someone's been around to film. So it just it makes it very the, the in the face nature of it because of this technology, it's it's just harder to um, just see it as something that happens to other people. I guess these are normal human reactions. Kind of understanding the politics of what's going on is all it's all human beings. It's all people, and our reactions are human. Our reactions are not necessarily kind of disembodied logic. Our reactions are human. Yeah. And and that's what you what you've experienced is what other people in Myanmar have experienced. They're they're seeing this day in day out, and they're seeing it in a very personal sense. I mean, there's 900 families who've who've had to work out in their minds why their why their you know why their loved one is dead for for protesting the coup and or resisting the coup, and that makes you think about lots of things. By its nature, genocide is about the destruction of a group, and a group that has been destroyed is by its nature different to others. So what people saw in the Rohingya was not themselves necessarily. They saw a group that was different, and it's the point of difference that allows the genocide to occur. In terms of resistance to the military and, and, and a commonality of experience and, a, and a, an opening up of preparedness to discuss the situation of the Rohingya is the, the personal experience that, that people are now having among the Burma majority of military brutality on their streets, in their neighbourhoods, affecting themselves and their families is something that then is making them question previous attitudes towards groups like the Rohingya and, and their, uh, their preparedness, I guess, to um, ignore it and just get on with their own lives and not really take much of an issue. And the way, the reason that could occur is that it's a different group, it's different people, they, you know, there is a point of difference. The military would have convinced people in a sense that you are never likely to be them because you are different and they are different. But what we're seeing now is that the, the military are brutal to everyone. They're more brutal to the group that they want to destroy totally, um, but they're brutal to everyone. And that's that's why I think the future of Myanmar will be, would be different uh, once the military's gone. If, if the military can be, can be got out, I think the future will be different to what we had last time we thought we were getting the military out. And how do people keep going? You know, you've got a military that is dismantling the media, that's silencing anyone who has any bit of power. Like if you have 10,000 Facebook followers, you've probably been arrested just because they feel you might have the power to grow. I mean, it's the same tactics that they've used for decades. Like their playbook hasn't changed, but I, it's just how do 
like you know you're talking this could be decades like how do people survive who are there now you know limited access to internet education dismantled media dismantled and now you're going to have propaganda military hate coming towards you like how do how do you keep going and how how do you survive in that well, well, I think I think probably the same way people keep going when they fight for any sort of regime change and to get their country back, that there will be ongoing resistance and people will do what they can do uh, in the circumstances that are available to them, and they'll wait. They'll wait for an opportunity to get the military out of power. If that comes quickly, that would be a very positive thing. But I think people are pretty determined that they don't want the military running their country. They're not. They're not prepared to. Uh, I mean, a situation where they might reluctantly accept the legitimacy of the military as rulers of the country. I don't think that will happen. I think we might see a reluctant acceptance of a reality, which is that the military is in control, but not a but no acceptance of the legitimacy of that control. And that means that people will take whatever opportunities they can uh, into the future to get the military out of power. In in Myanmar, and, and these things may not occur quickly. Um, this is this is an entrenched military. They've um, they've dug in in the past. Uh, they're they're prepared to brutalise pretty much the entirety of the country to maintain their own power within it. I, I don't think there's any step that they're not prepared to take to uh, maintain their own power within within Myanmar. It's going to be a very tough fight, uh, but the people are pretty clear. They don't see the military as legitimate. And, and ultimately, I think that's what's going to determine the outcome, that uh, the question becomes how long can an illegitimate military dictatorship hold on to, uh, hold on to power? And, I mean, I hope this will be something that, that can be achieved quickly, but I think the people would be prepared to keep fighting even if it takes a long, long time. But how they do that may, may be very, will be very different to how they've done that since February 1st. We're already seeing a, a, a change in how resistance presents itself within Myanmar. We're not seeing the big street protests that we saw at the start because the military will shoot people so and to kill them. So we're seeing pop-up protests. We're seeing uh, civil disobedience. I think that will continue uh, and that will get, that will be, that will get clever uh, as, as time goes by. That will not, that as much as the military will arrest people for undertaking civil disobedience, people will do other things to be civilly disobedient. Uh, we've already seen in the last two weeks, urban conflict in Mandalay where where resistance has taken on um, taken on the military with, with the military response with a, with a with a violent response uh, and now it's been a long time since we've seen political violence in the streets of Mandalay political violence in Myanmar, over the last number of decades has generally been around the periphery of the country and hasn't affected uh, the Bama majority in, in the urban centres. That's changing now. And that, that makes it difficult for the military to maintain. Again, it's another, it's another thing that undermines the military's legitimacy, that uh, if they cannot show that they are in control of the urban centres where most people live, then they can't show that they're in any way legitimate. And what role does the international community play in this then going forward? Well, the, the UN hasn't gotten involved in Myanmar in the past either. And, and, you know, we have seen opportunities for political change in Myanmar that have come out of Myanmar. It's going to, I mean, it's going to be the 50 million plus people of Myanmar that, that win this. It's not going to be the UN that wins this uh, or, or any foreign power. But there are things that the UN... And, and foreign powers can do. The sanctions against military companies is a very useful step that, that actually does destabilise the military economically. It makes it very difficult for the military to continue to function in the way that they used to uh, and to, to pay their people. I mean, that's, that is a useful strategy that can actually help uh, the people of Myanmar. Because it, it will destabilise the military and it will start to create a constituency 
among people connected with the military that either in business or, or, or even cronies who, who had a view that they'd be more than happy to work with the military. But if they can't make any money out of them, uh, then they're going to start looking elsewhere and start pushing for compromises. And that, that, would, be a, that would be a positive step. So that, that's something the international community can do, can make sure that, that the military can't access uh, foreign sources of income. Uh, legitimacy is important in, in this. Uh, no, the UN has not recognised uh, the military junta. And in fact, the, the Myanmar representative at the United Nations General Assembly is supporting the national unity government. He's on the other side. Uh, there'll be a decision to be made in, in the coming months about uh, the, the reaccreditation of Myanmar's representatives to the, to the UN. That will occur prior to uh, the new the new General Assembly meeting in September. Uh, we've already seen, uh, I mean, at the International Labour Organization conference recently, there were two Myanmar delegations that appeared. One was the military back delegation and the other was the national unity government delegation. Uh, the consequence was that the ILO uh, did not accept any Myanmar representatives and, and, and kicked the question back to the UN General Assembly and said, well, you need to, your credentials committee needs to work out who, who we should accept. Uh, this is affecting Myanmar at international medical bodies as well. Uh, I mean, during a time of, of pandemic where uh, Myanmar can't have a representative at these bodies because the military turns up and the national unity government turns up. Uh, what needs to happen is that the UN needs to recognise, I think, the legitimacy of uh, the national unity government rather than a military government. Uh, and we'll hopefully see that happen by, uh, through the credentials committee during, well, prior to uh, the General Assembly having its new session later in the year in September. Uh, so they, they are things that the international community can do. There'll be other opportunities as well. I mean, I see recently there's been some movement in the EU on timber and gems, uh, sanctioning military uh, companies involved in timber and gems, and that's that's another step. And uh, as uh, as the international community becomes more aware of exactly what the military is doing with its with its money and with its businesses, uh, but where we've seen no useful steps is around an arms embargo. It's possible for the military to keep buying arms, and they shouldn't be they shouldn't be allowed to do that. They simply shouldn't be allowed to do that. And I think if if there's no consensus at the UN Security Council, and there isn't, because two of the biggest arms suppliers to Myanmar are China and Russia, who both have a veto at the Security Council, then then other other influential powers at the Security Council, US, UK, France permanent members, uh, should impose unilaterally or multilaterally uh, an arms embargo and, and stop anyone, be prepared to stop anyone selling arms to the Myanmar military. And that hasn't happened yet. That's a step that hasn't happened yet. So uh, the US, Britain, they're not selling arms to the military, but they're not taking any steps to stop China or Russia or, or others selling arms to um, Myanmar's military. And that's, that's something that they, they can do. We need to be pushing our governments to make sure that they're making the point to Bangladesh that the, the problem here is Myanmar and the military of Myanmar, not the Rohingya. The Rohingya are the victims. They're not criminals. They're, um, they're refugee guests in Bangladesh. Uh, and Bangladesh should frame its response to this situation by understanding that the Rohingya are the victims, not the problem. Uh, and we should be pushing our governments to make that clear to Bangladesh because Bangladesh's government is, is getting that at the moment. I mean, there was a vote at the United Nations uh, during the last two weeks pushing the military to uh, not target civilians. But Bangladesh wasn't even prepared to support that proposal at the UN. Bangladesh stood with China and Russia and others uh, and, and these are the countries that are that are contributing to making the problem worse within Myanmar. So I think I think it's important that that pressure is put on Bangladesh to really understand where the problem lies here. The problem lies with with the military of Myanmar, not not with the Rohingya. But look, this is going to be this is going to be won by the people of Myanmar in Myanmar. It's going to be 
Myanmar's 50 million people that, that beat their military. It's not going to be some foreign power that does it for them. And they know that. So what, is there anything people can do? What can people do? Can, can, what, internationally, what can people do to help? What can we do individually? Um, well, it's important that we make clear to our governments as well that they should be pushing for uh, stronger action at the UN, that, that our governments should be making sure that the Credentials Committee of the United Nations uh, backs the National Unity Government uh, representatives at the UN rather than the military representatives. This will be a decision that every one of our countries will have to make uh, in, in the next three or four months. Do you vote to credential the military representatives to the UN uh, or the representatives of the National Unity Government of Myanmar? And that's something that we should be pushing our governments to do, particularly, I mean, particularly those who, who might have extra strong influence. I mean, Ireland, for instance, is, is a, a member of the Security Council at, at the moment. Um, the UK, a permanent member, of course, in the US. Uh, but, but every government will have to make a decision on uh, in, in the next couple of months. And that's something we should really be pushing our governments to do and, and to strengthen up the sanctions on military-connected companies as well. And Ronan, just the last thing maybe then is, in terms of the Rohingya then, like, I mean, you know, you describe the camps as concentration camps. And I don't think you're being dramatic. I think it's just a more accurate description of what they're living in. I mean, what what's the future hold for them while they wait for the country to solve itself? I mean, they, it sounds like a horrific place to be and I mean those who are caught in the camps in Bangladesh and then you've got those caught in camps inside the borders and, and this is the same in Kachin Karin we've seen a lot like in in the last while um how do those people survive you know in this time well, it's a pretty grim situation for the Ranger um it, it's grim whether they've escaped to Bangladesh or whether they're trapped within Myanmar um, the the international community often forgets that there are large concentration camps in in Myanmar that, that continued to exist uh, when the National League for Democracy was in power. There's 140,000 Rohingya in concentration camps uh, in Rakhine State. Uh, many of them have been there since 2012 and haven't been allowed return to their to their former homes. Uh, their situation is unlikely to improve with the military in power. Uh, the Rohingya situation generally doesn't get or generally gets worse when the military has more power within Myanmar. Now, wh whether or not the military is prepared to take any immediate action in Rakhine State in the current climate remains to be seen. They may feel that they're, they're stretched a little bit thin uh, nationwide in trying to quell resistance to the coup. But the one, we, can't, we shouldn't expect any improvements to the Rohingya situation within Myanmar. Limited access to health facilities, education just isn't available to them. Uh, they're either trapped in concentration camps or, or they're locked down in their villages. Uh, in, in northern Rakhine State, there's still there's still several hundred thousand Rohingya in northern Rakhine State that weren't, for various reasons, weren't deported in in 2017. They're they're they're, they're trapped there. They can't move anywhere else in in the country. They generally can't move even to adjacent villages. So their situation's pretty grim. Uh, really limited livelihood opportunities. Uh, they scrape by. Uh, food insecurity is very high. I mean, people people really do struggle and have done for, for, for decades, uh, but will continue to struggle with the military in power. For the Rohingya in Bangladesh, uh, one million Rohingya in, in refugee camps in Bangladesh, uh, things are getting worse. Uh, they're unlikely to be able to go home to Myanmar any day soon because the situation in Myanmar is as dangerous for them as it was when they left. And in fact, the military has more power in Myanmar than when they were forcibly deported in 2017. Uh, Bangladesh, it, its government is understandably becoming a little bit frustrated with one million Myanmar nationals living uh, along its international frontier. And it's, it's demonstrating that it's losing patience with the situation and starting to blame the Rohingya rather than blaming the perpetrators. I mean, the Rohingya, the victims, 
the, the Myanmar military are the perpetrators. Uh, but Bangladesh is starting to, to I think, feel that the Rohingya are part of the problem. It's securitising the camps, but building barbed wire fences, uh, limiting access to, uh, often limiting access to the internet at different times, uh, forcibly removing Rohingya from the camps to another camp uh, on the Basanchar Island in the Bay of Bengal, uh, which is a, a, a sort of a recently emerged mud island uh, in, in, in the Bay of Bengal. Uh, no commercial ferry service, uh, media card visit, you can't leave once you're there. The UN has asked to, uh, I think Human Rights Watch has been trying to visit for, for some time, hasn't been allowed to. Uh, journalists have been trying to visit, haven't been allowed to. Uh, it, it, it's it's basically an island prison, as it was described by Human Rights Watch. Uh, and and that's, that's a pretty grim outlook for Rohingya in Bangladesh. So the situation for the Rohingya is not improving, whether they're in Myanmar or whether they're in Bangladesh. And I think, Ronan, like a, there, there's always going to be some people who will find, I mean, reason to maybe still support Aung San Suu Kyi or to sympathize with her on some level and maybe won't feel as forceful as you. But whatever way you look at this, the military are the ones who committed this, this genocide and they now rule the country. So if any country allows them to be the legitimate government, you are essentially saying it's okay to commit genocide and you can go on and rule a country and you can come and shake hands and you can fly into my country and I'll roll out a red carpet for you. I mean, even if you say it happened under the civilian government, I mean, the people, the perpetrators are the military. Like They are the ones who carried out the acts and that's not disputed by anybody, is it? No, no. I mean, the, the problem here is the military. Yeah, I mean, moving moving forward, there'll be questions. Uh, once the, I mean, once people get the military out of power, uh, I, I think there'll be questions asked about what sort of future uh, Myanmar wants. And I, I, I think that we've seen since since the, the coup that Myanmar is going to have a much more open debate about the sort of future it wants. And I don't expect the old timers in the National League for Democracy to have the influence that they've had uh, over the last 10, 15 years in terms of setting the the democratic political agenda for Myanmar. I don't I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but part, partly because of because of age that they're 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 aging, and and the young people of of Myanmar. And 70 percent of Myanmar weren't born when Aung San Suu Kyi first came to political prominence in 1988. 70% of the country weren't born. And, and young people want a very different future for Myanmar than, than the future that I think the National League for Democracy was prepared to, to give them. So the, there's some really positive things that can, can, can come out of getting the military out of power. And, and, but there will be debates to be had and there's a lot of hard work to be done. I mean, this is not by any stretch of the imagination. It's not a done deal that the military can be got out of power. And and after that, there will be some hard decisions and debates to be had about the future of, uh, future of Myanmar. But there's some really positive indications uh, that the voices that were excluded previous will be, will be included in, in the future of Myanmar. And that's, that's a pretty good thing. Okay. Well, I think we've got loads there, uh, Ronan. It's really great. Thanks so much, Ronan. I've learned so much today. Talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast, spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.